0: Amen. Thanks, Ev. Good morning, Grace Hill. How are you? Good. Good to see all of you. Uh, My name is Alan, one of the pastors here at Grace Hill. So if you're new or we haven't met, I would love to meet you after the service. If you're joining us at the table, excited to get lunch with you as well after our service. Um, That will be uh, it'll be great to spend that time. Uh, with you. Uh, Luke chapter 14. If you have a Bible, go ahead and get that open to to Luke 14. We're gonna uh, cover um, a good amount of text again uh, today. We'll be going from Luke 14, verse 25, all the way through the entire chapter of Luke 15. And I'm excited for that this morning because I hope That as we look at large chunks of Scripture, that you see very clear themes emerge out of the Scripture. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning. So we'll uh, begin to read that here in just a few uh, moments. Um, You know, the other day, I uh, told my kids to clean the room. And every time I do that, they obey without question and don't fight me at all. I told my kids, go clean your rooms. So they started cleaning. And uh, my, my daughter, Christy, um, she typically has more work to do uh, when she's told to clean her rooms than my son, Leland. And so it's, it's just a little tougher for her. And so uh, Christy was upset that I was asking her to, to do this. And so um, on the floor of her room was a Mrs. Potato Head. And so Christy grabs her Mrs. Potato Head, walks over to my son Leland's room, tosses it in there so it explodes all over the floor, and says, hey, Leland, I have a gift for you, and walks away. And then I hear Leland from the distance go, I don't want this. And then, of course, the shouting matches happen. So I come in, hey, hey, what what is happening here? And Christy's like, I gave Leland a gift. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And I look, see the Mrs. Potato Head on the ground. And Leland's like, I don't want this. I'm like, Christy, Christy, Leland doesn't want a Mrs. Day head. You can't just give, decide to give him a gift when you don't want to put something away and to give him the problem. See, my daughter at a very young age, just like all of us at a very young age, we have learned how to conceal our motives, Right? I don't really want to clean my room, but what I'll do is I'll give Leland a gift. Because, of course, when I come marching in and say, what's going on here? She can just look as pretty as can be and say, I was just being nice to my brother. Of course, that's not what was happening. Leland didn't want a Mrs. Potato Head. And so Christie had to pick it up off of his floor. But we learn at a very young age how to conceal our true motives. And what I think we learn as followers of Jesus or as people of faith, I think one of the things that we learn as well is how to use our faith, how to use our religion or our religious traditions or values to conceal our true motives. It's actually something we see all over the scripture. You know, or it's like the classic example of the preacher who spiritually manipulates his congregation to give loads and loads and loads of money to the church because that means God will bless you. This is what God wants for you just so the preacher can enrich himself. It's like that. Or it might be certain religious voting blocks, right, in politics. Certain, not all, but certain religious voting blocks who like to use their religion or their values to support certain policies. But we know for some of them it's really just about power and money, right? Or how their 401k is doing. It's things like that. I've seen it a lot in the church where I see people. Uh, say, are, are, they're reluctant or they refuse to help someone who's asking for money or to help the poor. Because the Bible says the poor will always be with you. And so, well, we can't solve the problem. And of course, that's not, that's not how the Bible teaches on that subject. But we can use our faith, we can twist our faith to put lipstick on the pig, if you, if you will. Conceal our motives. It could be as simple as What I really want to do is talk bad about that other person. And so I can disguise my gossip with things like talking about their sin and how we can confront them. It's something that we do all the time. Everybody does it. We learn at a young age how to conceal our motives. And here's why I bring this up is because we've been studying the Gospel of Luke for several weeks. We've been studying the Gospel of Luke for a very long time, taking some breaks. We're in part 45, I believe, today. And as we've been studying the Gospel of Luke, especially the last three or four chapters, we've been going on a particular journey with Jesus. And what we've been seeing as Jesus has been literally on his journey from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem in order for him to go to the cross. One of the things that we see on this journey is the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, doing this exact thing. Using their religion, using their power, using their position to conceal what they really want. To make what they really want look better, Right, I want you to see this. If you go to Luke 12, so just, if you're in Luke 14, back up a couple of verses. Jesus says this about the Pharisees. Luke 12, I'm gonna read half of verse one into verse two. Jesus says this, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. So, what Jesus is saying is, you need to watch out for those Pharisees' religious leaders because they've got certain motives, but they're covering over those motives. They're covering over their, those desires with their religion, with their faith. They're concealing it with their faith. And so we've been on this journey with Jesus over the last several chapters and We've been seeing this. We've been seeing this kind of headbutting between the Pharisees and Jesus. Right? So we go to Luke chapter 13, right? So just go one chapter over and we read about this incident where Jesus is in the synagogue. They're worshiping, they're reading scripture like they would do every single week. And Jesus sees a woman who's been suffering in pain for 13 years. And he has compassion on her. He calls her and he heals her. And the Pharisees are indignant, the scripture says, frustrated that Jesus would do this because he's doing it on the Sabbath day. Right? He's healing people, serving people, caring for people on the Sabbath day. And they say, do that any other day, just not the Sabbath day. What's what's going on here? Are the Pharisees, Do they really care that much about the Sabbath day? Well, Jesus points out, hey, look at all this other stuff, how you care for your animals and stuff on the Sabbath day. That's not really what's going on here. What's really going on here is you're upset that, one, everybody's eyes are on Jesus, and, two, that he's caring for people that you don't like or think deserve God's grace. You see how they use their religion to conceal the true motive, then we go into Luke chapter 14. Evan preached on this last week. It's a very similar story. Jesus is at a Pharisee's house. There's a man with dropsy, this condition that a lot of people assumed meant that this person was a sexually immoral person or whatever, but this condition of dropsy and, and Jesus... Heals the man, has compassion, same story, and the Pharisees are frustrated that Jesus would do this on the Sabbath. What's going on here? Do they really care that much about the Sabbath? Jesus points out, no, what's really going on here is you don't like it, that everyone's eyes are on me, and that I am caring for people that you don't like or think deserve my grace or ministry or forgiveness. They're using their religion to conceal their motive. So later in Luke 14, Jesus tells this parable, the parable of the wedding feast. You have to understand something in scripture is so important for what we're gonna talk about today. The scripture describes the kingdom of God, like eternal life and are with God for all of eternity. It describes that like a feast, like a party, a celebration, right? People coming together and celebrating, feasting, good wine, good drink, all of that. That's how the scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, describes the kingdom of God. And so Jesus tells this parable. He says, okay, let's just say there was a wedding feast, right? Big feast, right? It's supposed to be like the kingdom of God. And he says, all of you Pharisees, all you care about is who gets the place of honor at the feast? That, that's all you care about. Who, who gets to be the one who's great in the kingdom of God? Who gets to be the one that everyone looks to and says, wow, look at him, I mean, he's amazing. That's all you care about. And so here's what's happening in Luke, as Jesus is kind of having this back and forth with the Pharisees through Luke 12, 13, and 14 is Jesus has been showing us through his actions and his teaching, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And the Pharisees have been showing us through their actions and through the things that they say, this is why we hate that. This is why the kingdom that he's displaying to us, we, it, we want no part of it. We don't wanna be there. It's disgusting to us. Right, so later on in Luke 14, this was last week again, Jesus tells another parable, the parable of the great banquet. Again, another feast, right? It's to display the kingdom of God. So Jesus is like, all right, let's just imagine there's another big feast going on. All right, big party. And all of you are invited. And he's talking to the Pharisees, right? The religious leaders. All of you are invited. Come in, come in. The feast is ready. It's time to begin. And yet, all of my invited guests have other excuses. They have other things going on in their lives that they would rather do than be at the feast. In other words, they're peering into what the kingdom of God would be like according to Jesus, and they go, we don't want to be there. I don't want any part of that. And so as we've been on this journey with Jesus, the kingdom of God according to Jesus is salvation, restoration, healing, grace, forgiveness, mercy, compassion on the lost, on the hurting, and on the outsider. I'm going to go after them. I'm going to show compassion and grace and mercy. I'm going to give of myself for them, and we're going to let them in. That's the kingdom of God according to Jesus, but the kingdom of God according to the Pharisees, what they think the kingdom of God should be like is, this is my reward for me being great. And you know who's not here? All of those lost, hurting people, all of those outsiders, all of those Gentiles, all of those sinners, they're not here because they don't deserve to be here And so, when Jesus describes the kingdom of God and it includes all those people, the Pharisees want no part of it. That brings us to the beginning of our text today in Luke 14. We left off last week in, oh, I believe, verse 24. And we're going to pick it up today in verse 25. I give you that context. I walk through all of that with you. Because what we're about to read is hard. But context is everything. Everything. We have to understand who is Jesus saying these words to and why. So let's read it. Luke 14, starting in verse 25 through verse 33, says this. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, oh, hard word, okay. Hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, even himself. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross And come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish." What king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored. It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a tough text. Remember though, context is everything here. Who is Jesus talking to? Why is Jesus saying these things? What has been happening in our text to help inform us of what Jesus means when he uses these tough words. See, I believe that this message that that Jesus is is preaching here is directed toward the, the Pharisees. It's directed towards the religious leaders. It's directed toward the religious. It's not directed, at least right now, toward the irreligious. I'll explain in a few minutes why I believe that. That these words are directed toward the religious, the people who think that they're doing everything they need to do to be right with God, to be in the kingdom, to follow Jesus. These words are directed right to them and not the irreligious. And what Jesus is saying is, if you wanna follow me, if you wanna be about my kingdom, you... You've got to count the cost. This thing has to be more important than every other thing. We know Jesus is not saying you need to blanket hate your family because he says different things along the way. It's a comparative thing. He's saying this needs to come first out of everything else in your life. You need to be able to prioritize this over everything else. And so we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But Jesus says even to the point that you need to pick up your cross. Well, hold on. Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet, so that may not have registered with them as he was saying those things. He was referring in their minds to a Roman style of execution. You need to be able to pick up your cross, literally be willing to die in order to follow me in these very things. And so here's the thing. This is what makes me wonder. If these words are directed towards the religious, uh, toward the Pharisees, what was it that the Pharisees were unwilling to give up? What is it that the religious might be unwilling to give to give up, right? If they were doing this true analysis, you know, like when Jesus brings up, you know, if you're gonna build a tower, you're gonna think about the cost of that. And if you're able to do it, or if you're going to war, if they were doing a true analysis of what will be the cost of following Jesus and being a part of his kingdom, if they were doing that, where did Jesus lose them? What was the point for them where they go, no, 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 that cost is too high for me. think the answer is found in Luke 15, as we continue in our text. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, so the religious leaders, grumbled. They hate that saying, this man receives sinners and eats of them. So pause right there. This is one of the reasons why I believe that the words in Luke 14 are directed toward the religious and not the lost, not the irreligious, because of this contrast that we have set up here between Luke 14 and Luke 15. Jesus is drawing near, and the irreligious are drawing near back to Jesus, and he's not directing these words to them. He's directing these words to other people. Jesus is dining with them, eating with them, displaying the kingdom of God to them. Because every time you see a table with people eating, the scripture is trying to display the kingdom of God. But the Pharisees, they're disgusted that Jesus would do this, eat with them. And so in response to that disgust, in response to the fact that Jesus would spend time with lost, hurting people, Jesus tells three parables. Three parables that we read during our worship this morning together. All three of these parables are designed to show to you, display to you the kingdom of God. Right, we we did the first one, was the parable of the lost sheep. This idea that if a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one wanders off and is lost, he's going to leave the 99, right? He's not going to say, okay, well, the lost one, he's an idiot, I'm gonna give all my attention to you. No, the shepherd's gonna go after the one, go after the lost and rescue it and bring it back. And then what happens in the parable? Feast, everyone celebrates. Because in the kingdom of God, everyone celebrates when the lost are found. Parable two, lost coin. Woman loses a coin. She's in her house. She turns the entire house upside down, sweeping, turning the lights on, picking up the couches, looking under every cushion to find the coin. And when she finds the coin, she goes through every obstacle and inconvenience to find this coin. And when she does, what happens? feast, because in the kingdom of God, everyone celebrates when the lost are found. The third parable we read was the parable of the prodigal son. Story of this younger son who forsakes his dad, takes all of his inheritance, goes and spends all of it, finds himself poor with nothing. It's Just Shame. believing that there's no way I belong in my father's house anymore, but maybe I can work for it, at least for something. Makes his trek back to his father, rehearsing his speech, trying to figure out how he could convince them to give him something. And what does he see? He sees his father running towards him. And his father has no patience for the speech. And he throws a party, a feast. Because everyone in the kingdom celebrates when the lost are found. They don't scoff, they party when the lost are found. I, I just want to pause here before we continue and just say if you're, if you're here listening online and You're not sure yet what you believe when it comes to Jesus. I just want you to know this right here. What we're seeing on display is the heart of God. The attitude of God towards you. And if you're in one of those places where you feel like there's no way God would ever forgive me. There's no way I would ever be worthy of his kingdom or these good things that you talk about. I just want you to know the scripture saying to you, no, that's, that is a lie. This is the heart of God. He desires for you to be in his family and he's willing to jump over every obstacle, even death itself, in order to make a way for you to be in his family. If you're here today and you believe in Jesus, but you are just burdened with guilt, Or shame by something going on in your life. And yes, you hear all these things. You know the right words to say in your head, but in your chest. There's no way you believe that God would ever act this way towards you. That the kingdom of God would celebrate over you. I just want you to know that's a lie. This is the heart of God. And you can give him every bit of your burden. Every bit of your guilt and every bit of your shame, and the kingdom will celebrate over you. In Luke 15, when we come back, we only read half the parable. We read up to verse 24, but in verse 25, the the parable continues. But I want you to remember our question. What's the question that we're asking, that we're looking for Luke 15 to answer? And that's this. What was it for the Pharisees that was too much for them? What cost was too high for them in order to follow Jesus, to be a part of this kingdom? What was it? Let's go to verse 25. Let's continue the story. It says this. Now his older son, so the older son of the younger brother, the older son of the father, Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He heard the sounds of the kingdom. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. What is this? What is that? What is that sound? It's different. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back in sound, in sound. They're celebrating. Verse 28 But he, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in to the party, to the feast, to the kingdom. His father came out, because that's what the father does. He goes after people. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You never allowed me to celebrate me. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to his son, son, you are always with me and all that that is mine is yours. You're welcome into the kingdom. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It was fitting to celebrate in the kingdom because when the lost are found, the kingdom goes wild and celebrates. The parable of the prodigal son ends with the younger son who sinned against his dad in the kingdom And the older son, the religious son, the one who, in his own mind, did everything right, was outside the kingdom. Not because he wasn't invited. Not because the door wouldn't have been held wide open for him if he wanted to go in, but because he refused to go in. The kingdom of God, according to Jesus in Luke 12, 13, 14, 15, is salvation, restoration, healing for the lost, the hurting, and the outsider. And that is not a party or a kingdom that the elder brother wanted to attend that is not a party or a kingdom that the Pharisees wanted to have anything to to do with. That was not a celebration that they were willing to join. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What is Jesus referring to back in Luke 14? Well, from Luke 12 to 15, as we've been preaching this over the weeks, what we see Jesus do, right? Jesus is going after the lost. He sees the woman who is hurting in the synagogue. He goes after her. He tells these parables of going after the lost sheep, the lost coin, the younger brother who sinned against his father in massive ways. In the peril of the great banquet, he talks about, okay, my invited guests won't come in. Then go to the highways and hedges of the town and invite people in. Invite in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Invite in those on the edges of the city who are marginalized and oppressed and pushed out by the city. Bring them all in. From Luke 12 to 15, we have watched Jesus go after the lost. We have watched Jesus put a clinic on for what the kingdom of God is like. And so he's saying, listen, you want to follow me, you want to be a part of the kingdom, then this. You've got to lay down your life, you've got to pick up your cross, and you've got to join me in going after these people. This is what it means. This is more important than anything else in your life. This is what Jesus is saying in Luke 14. More important than anything else in your life is joining me in my mission to go after the lost, the hurting, and the outsider and to celebrate every time we get one. You know, and we breezed over real fast in Luke 14, verse 34 and 35, when Jesus randomly starts to talk about salt. He says this, he says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Back in those days, they're in Israel. They have the Dead Sea right next to them, right? And so they would mine that for salt. And salt was used to preserve meat, was used a variety of different things. But because they mined it and they didn't purify it as well as we do today, right? They would have salt that was good, that was salty, and then they would have salt that had a bunch of other stuff in it, and it wasn't as salty, See, so throw it out, it's useless. I need good salt. Jesus is obviously using this as a metaphor for the Christian. For those who follow him. People who follow Jesus are salty. Not in the way we use that term today. I know, I think today, right, if you call someone salty, it, it means something probably the opposite. But what is a salty Follower of Jesus, according to this context here in Luke 14. What's a salty Christian? A salty Christian is someone who says, I will drop everything to see the lost found, I will drop everything to move in compassion towards the hurting and the broken. I will drop everything to see people who are marginalized, who are pushed to the outside, brought in. I'm going to join Jesus in that mission. And when the lost are found, there's going to be something inside of me that's going to bubble up. It's celebration. Because the kingdom always celebrates when the lost are found. These Pharisees that Jesus is speaking to wanted no part of it. They could not fathom a kingdom with lost, broken people included. So can we just consider Jesus' words here in, in Luke 14? These are, these are tough words, but here's what Jesus is saying. If I, if I can just update it for us today, what he's saying is this is, this, as a follower of Jesus, is more important than everything. He's saying it's more important than your career, it's more important than your lifestyle, it's more important than your family. Is Jesus saying go and forsake all those things, walk away from your career, walk away from your relationships? No, he's not saying that. But he is asking the question, will we prioritize these other things, even good things, over joining Jesus in his mission to care for, to love, and to go after the lost and the hurting and the outsider? So you might ask, Alan, okay, I get it. How do we become more salty? What do we do to be more salty? Two things I wanna give you quickly and then we'll be done. Two quick things that I have. The first one is this. We will never have a heart for the lost and the hurting and the broken. We will never have a heart that lurches towards celebration when the lost are found if we don't first believe that we were once lost and Jesus literally picked up his cross and laid down his life for you. See, when we look at the Pharisees through the gospel of Luke, they were offended at the notion that they needed to be saved. They were offended at the notion that they needed to repent. They were offended at the notion that there was sin inside of them. Self-righteousness was their religion. The elder brother in Luke 15 only saw himself as righteous and in no need of any sort of saving or redemption. And so if your heart has no empathy towards those who don't know Christ, or if your heart has no empathy towards the suffering or the hurting or the marginalized or the oppressed or the poor, the kind of heart that we see in Jesus in the gospel so clearly, if your heart doesn't have empathy for them, then you might need to check to make sure that you're not the one refusing to go into the party. That you're not the one going, I don't know, those sounds in there, that doesn't sound right in there. Because a heart that is cold towards the lost is a heart that is cold towards Jesus. But we're good at concealing our motives. And maybe this morning, just like the father went after the elder brother went outside to go get him, begged him to come in. Come in, you're invited. Maybe that's what the Lord is doing with your heart today. Because he loves you and he wants you in his kingdom. But first, we have to understand that we need the Father to come after us and save us first. That's the first thing. And second thing, how do we get more salty as Christians? Is we need to start embracing the inconvenience of going after people. Uh, Jesus, listen, he, he wasn't sugarcoating the work, right? He wasn't sugarcoating what he was calling us to. He says, you will have to lay your life down for this. You're going to have to pick up your cross for this. And so we've got to understand that going after people and loving people in the way that it happens in the kingdom will be inconvenient. And so uh, let me give you just three low-hanging options on this. Ways that we can start embracing the inconvenience of loving people well. And the first one is just through your community groups. There are hurting people in your community groups. There are hurting people there. I know that. And so one of the ways in our groups that we can just love each other so well is to go after one another. To, to, to be present at groups so we can build that relationship. I know that's inconvenient. To, to remember people in our prayers, to text them, to call them, to remember the things that they're going through, to ask follow-up questions, to be curious about their life, to, to literally say, hey, in this group, I want to be oriented around you. I want to care for these people. That requires effort and inconvenience and pushing forward into that. So That's just a really easy, low-hanging way that we can begin to be a little more salty as Christians, to embrace that. Second way that we could do that is embracing our gap ministry here at Grace Hill. Someone in my community group asked me last week, Alan, what's the one thing you're most excited about at Grace Hill right now? And I said, it is gap. Because our county has asked us. We didn't initiate this. They have asked us to help them care for the most vulnerable in our town. And so we have six, seven, eight, I can't remember, families, and it's growing. We're going to get more that the county has asked us as a church, hey, will you help us meet their needs and care for them? And so let's embrace that. It's going to be inconvenient. We're going to have to do some extra things. They're going to be added to our schedule, maybe some extra costs in providing groceries for these people, an extra grocery run in the week, having to schedule something in our week to go and drop it off, maybe even staying there at their door for a few minutes and chatting with them. I've seen community groups go through this. And I've seen community groups have the opportunity to care for some of these families in very specific and unique ways. And it always elicits celebration. It's an easy way. We can just embrace this. Let's jump in. Let's let's do gap well as a, as a church. And the last way is just through your neighbors. How can we begin to pursue our neighbors, get to know our neighbors more? It will be inconvenient. It will mean going out of the way. It will may mean putting ourselves in social situations we don't really like. But at the end of the day, how can we go and just love our neighbors well? Because your neighbors live in a broken world, and you have neighbors who are hurting. I know that for a fact. So what would it look like for you to be one who's curious about that? To be an easy person to talk to about that? Someone who's like, man, come sit on the back deck. Let's have a drink and let's enjoy one another and I just wanna hear about your story. Man, we live in a world that is so thirsty for that. So thirsty for it and they might even be a little repelled by it. Easy ways, your groups, their gap, your neighbors, that we can begin to embrace the inconvenience of going after people. But this is what it means to follow Jesus, is to join him in that mission. And Grace Hill, it's my prayer and my yearning as one of your pastors and leaders is that we would just continue to grow as a church in following Jesus in this way. And, and most of all, that when we see the lost and the hurting and the outsider brought in and cared for and loved, that we a wild with celebration. Because when the lost are found, the kingdom celebrates. Let me pray. God, would you grow that heart inside of us? This heart that Jesus has that we've just seen on display as we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke. Would you grow this heart in us that longs for the lost to be found? that longs to show compassion to the hurting and bring the outsider in. A heart that can't help but celebrate when we see do you do your work of redemption and salvation. Lord, I pray that you would produce great fruit in and through our church as we do things like care for one another and care for the community around us. God, we're willing we're willing to follow you in this way. We, we have spent time this morning counting the cost, doing the analysis. We wanna follow you in your mission and going after the lost. In Jesus' name, amen.